Episode 19, Ready or Not. And by ready or not, we mean our new cookbook, which is coincidentally titled Ready or Not. In today's episode, we're going to delve into what this book is all about and give you a behind-the-scenes look at the three-year-long process we went through to produce this labor of love. The full title of our cookbook is actually Ready or Not, 150-plus Make-Ahead, Make-Over, and Make-Now Recipes by Nom Nom Paleo. That's a mouthful, Dad. That's why we normally just call it Ready or Not. I like to call it Ron, like Ron Harper or Ron Artest, also known as Meta World Peace. Do you know what jersey number Meta World Peace was on the Lakers? This is not a basketball podcast, Ollie. No basketball talk, but don't worry. We'll be covering more than just our new cookbook in this episode. In addition to all the cookbook fun, we'll also share a story behind one of my favorite summer recipes and encourage you to do some good. So ready or not, here we come. Welcome to our program. This is the Nom Nom Paleo Podcast with Michelle Tam, Henry Fong, and the Double O's. Join us as we go behind the scenes and reveal how we make a real food lifestyle fun, sustainable, and non-tastic. We're the food nerds behind Nom Nom Paleo, the award-winning food blog, app, cookbooks, and more. And we're also the parents of two growing boys, Big O, Hello, and Lil Lo. Hi. <laughs> and they're the reason we do what we do. months ago, out of the blue, Sunset Magazine reached out and asked if I'd contribute a recipe and a story to its June issue. To me, for Sunset to come calling was crazy and kind of a dream come true. For those of you out there who don't know what Sunset Magazine is, it's a lifestyle magazine that focuses on cooking, home, garden, and travel in the western United States. I grew up in Menlo Park, California, and as a little girl, I passed the Sunset Magazine headquarters on Willow Road all the time. It was like just a mile from my house and really close to the library, and being a good nerdy Chinese girl, I went to the library a lot. And even though Menlo Park is now much more famous for being the home of Facebook, back when I was a kid, a long, long time ago, the fact that Sunset was in our backyard was a big deal. I mean, the place wasn't just an office building. It was a campus on seven acres with gorgeously tended gardens. About 20 years ago, Sunset Magazine began hosting a celebration weekend for the public, which was sort of a home and garden festival with chefs and wine and all sorts of presentations and vendors. When our family had visitors in town, we'd always take them to the Sunset Magazine gardens and test kitchens. My great aunt had a subscription, and when I was little, I'd dive into every issue as soon as it arrived. Mostly to look at the food. Not the uh, gardening, I assume? Nope. Probably should have paid more attention to the gardening stuff, though. Because that's why I grew up to have such a black thumb. Wait, what's a black thumb? I think it's when you don't wash your hands enough. Nope. It means I'm a terrible gardener. Or I would be a terrible gardener if I ever tried to do it. Anyway, after 60-something years in Menlo Park, Sunset's headquarters was sold a few years ago. The magazine moved across the bay to Oakland's Jack London Square in a sleek new building, but without the lush gardens. A big part of my hometown's history felt like it was gone. But then Sunset, out of the blue, sent you an email. Yes! Sunset's food editor, Margot True, reached out to see if I'd be interested in sharing a summer memory and accompanying recipe for an upcoming issue, and if I wanted to do a cooking demo at Celebration Weekend in Sonoma. Even though I was nervous about the cooking demo, I agreed to both right away. 
In the past, I've let my irrational fear of failure hold me back from doing certain things that scare me. But nowadays, I dive headfirst into heck yeah opportunities when they present themselves. That's something I try to encourage the boys to embrace ever since they were little. Do the cool things, even if they scare you. Because what's the worst that can happen, right? Well, you could fail and look stupid. Well, there's nothing wrong with failing, as long as you learn something from it and pick yourself up afterwards. So, wait, there's nothing wrong with failing? Like, we could get F's in school and we would be okay? Your dad didn't say that. We're still Chinese. (laughs) Let's get back on track. Michelle, how did you feel your cooking demo at Sunset Celebration Weekend went? Well, I didn't fail or look stupid. I think it went pretty well. I made crackling chicken. Hey, it's now called Ollie's Crackling Chicken. Remember? You renamed it for the new book. Duh. Right. (laughs) I made Ollie's Crackling Chicken on the outdoor kitchen stage in front of a packed house. And you know what? It wasn't too scary. I just treated it like I was doing one of my weekly Facebook Live videos. And by the way, if you haven't watched me on Facebook Live, I come on every Wednesday night at 5 p.m. Pacific on my Facebook page, Nom Nom Paleo. I love doing them because it's just like me cooking in my kitchen with the two kids just bugging me, and I sort of pretend nobody's watching. It's kind of like cooking in front of a one-way mirror where people can ask me questions. Anyway, during the cooking demo, Margo was there to ask me questions and to banter with me, which made it a lot less nerve-wracking. It helped that I'd already been interviewed by Margo for the article in Sunset Magazine. Yeah, speaking of that article, what was the summer story you told Margo? I told her how we were suckered into buying a timeshare in Maui, and we reluctantly returned year after year to make fish tacos. Wait, that's not what the article says. <laughs> I'm kidding. I told her how much we love going to Maui every year, and it's a place where we all decompress and bond as a family. One of the dishes we happen to make all the time are paleo fish tacos with a pineapple cilantro salsa because it's easy, tasty, and we can eat it on the lanai. One of the best things about our annual retreat to Maui is that we actually have a kitchen, so we don't feel forced to pay through the nose for overpriced meals at touristy restaurants where, you know, the views are fantastic, but the food is sometimes only mediocre. Right. In episode nine of our podcast, we talked about eating on Maui, but long story short, We do our best to stock up on groceries as soon as we land on the island and cook many of our meals throughout the week. And when we do decide to dine out, I tend to go back to my favorite places, restaurants that I've come to know and love. One of those places is actually Fish Market Maui, a seafood counter near where we stay. It's on our usual walking path to a little health food store where we like to go, so it's really convenient. That health food store, I can't even remember the name. I think it's like Hanakoi Farmer's Market. Something like that, but it's a totally hippy-dippy little store, but I love it. And we go there, I go there every morning, sometimes twice a day. They have tons of vegan dips and snacks and acai bowls. And even though I'm obviously not vegan, I appreciate that the food there is mostly unprocessed and whole. It's good stuff. I'm able to pick up lots of ingredients there. And then on my way back, I stop by Fish Market Maui for fresh seafood. And Fish Market Maui is just this little unassuming storefront in a strip mall. But the seafood comes straight from the boats of local fishermen, and it's glistening and fresh. They offer cooked dishes too, and sometimes if we're feeling particularly hungry or lazy, we'll just order fish tacos there. But more often than not, I'll buy fresh ono or mahi-mahi, and then bring it back to our kitchen to cook ourselves. As long as I have my act together and I remember to pick up a few key grocery items from the Hippy Dippy Vegan Health Food Store, I'm able to make some quick pickles, make a pineapple cilantro salsa, 
Cook up the fish, slice up some avocados, and make lettuce-wrapped fish tacos for the family. But let's be honest, though. We we usually just buy store-bought salsa. Busted, Mom. Well, yes. Okay, the the salsa that I made for Sunset Magazine was inspired <laughs> by the salsas that we buy there. But, you know, it's very simple to make, and we don't always have a blender there, okay? I just throw in some pineapple chunks, red onion, olive oil, garlic, lime, cilantro, jalapeno, some salt, and I blitz it, and then voila, pineapple cilantro salsa. So no, I don't make the ones there sometimes, but I could if I wanted to. It's pretty great on fish tacos, especially with pickled onions for that tartly sweet finish. Totally. And that's why we don't just make these fish tacos when we're in Hawaii. During the summer when we're back in the Bay Area or in Portland, we'll whip up fish tacos to recapture a bit of the laid-back Maui vibe. It only takes about a half hour of prep work, and the results are like a bright, sunny bite of summer. If you want the recipe, go grab a copy of the June issue of Sunset Magazine. The article features six cooks who talk about ingredients that capture the joy of summer eating in the West. Ruth Reichel waxes poetic about blackberries, but when does she never wax poetic? (laughs) Vitaly Paley digs into plums. Dana Rodriguez gets into green chilies. Jessica Koslow tells us about tomatoes. Chris Yenbamrung praises avocados. And I gush about fish tacos. I'll also post a link to the article and recipe in the episode show notes, which you can find on nomnompaleo.com. Now I want to go back to Hawaii. Not this summer, kiddo. This year we have a book tour. Oh, But at least you can enjoy this Hawaiian melody, Owen. The main course. Okay, guys, ready to talk about the new cookbook? I'm more than ready. Creating this cookbook was such a massive undertaking, and it took us years of work. So I'm actually bursting at the seams to talk about our new book. I cannot wait to share it with everyone, and I've been waiting to talk about it for a long, long time. You know, I was going through the photos in this book the other day, and I realized we actually started shooting photos for this book almost four years ago, just about a week or so before our first cookbook was released. Yeah, back when Owen was younger than Ollie is now. That's crazy. Back when his voice wasn't deep like this. Yeah, back when my voice was like this. Hi. (laughs) No, I think it was even higher. But anyway, let's start at the beginning. The beginning beginning or just the, the beginning of this second cookbook? All the way back. I'm sure there are listeners out there who might be curious about how we got into the cookbook writing business in the first place and how a cookbook comes together. You know, the the behind-the-scenes stuff, Cookbook Publishing 101. Is this going to be boring? Well, it all depends on whether you think cookbook publishing is boring. Okay, so this is going to be boring. We won't get too bogged down with the details of cookbook publishing, but I will tell you a story about how completely ignorant we were about the process when we got started and how our ignorance actually resulted in something good. So let's rewind back to 2011. Back in 2011, Nom Nom Paleo, the blog, was about a year old. Paleo was growing fast, like really fast, and we were lucky to be riding that wave as one of the very first paleo blogs that was focused first and foremost on cooking. At the time, there were others, of course. Sarah Fragoso had Everyday Paleo, Mel Julwan had The Clothes Make the Girl, which is now well-fed, and Bill Staley and Haley Mason had Primal Palette. Paleo cookbooks were just starting to hit the market. There were a handful of them almost all published by a small company called Victory Belt, or small at the time. And these books were selling like gangbusters. 
At the time, I was one of the only paleo food bloggers who didn't have a cookbook deal, and I was approached by a bunch of publishers about possibly writing a book. But you did not want to do it. Well, I did and I didn't. As many of you listeners know, I love cookbooks, but I'm also a contrarian. Seeing everyone around me write cookbooks made me want to do something different. That's when I saw an article in the New York Times about, okay, I I didn't see it because I don't read the New York Times, but Henry, you showed it to me, (laughs) (laughs) about how the iPad was revolutionizing the cookbook publishing industry. Apple's iPad had just been released, and the article pointed out that with all the new features and functionality of the tablet, traditional cookbooks were going the way of the dodo bird. Going forward, apps were the future of cookbooks, or so they thought in 2011. Yeah, we were in Hawaii when that article came out. I remember that we read it and then just decided on the spot to stop taking calls from book publishers and instead take the plunge into app development. Were we eating fish tacos? Who knows? Maybe. With pineapple cilantro salsa, I bet. Yeah, a little a little jar of pineapple Made cilantro. Made by our friendly neighborhood vegan hippies. Anyway, we were excited to develop an interactive iPad cooking app with step-by-step recipes and really cool features, even though we had absolutely no idea how to get started. We were so naive. So naive. Yeah, if you, if you are thinking out there about developing a native mobile app, meaning a, an app that's custom developed for a mobile device, my recommendation is that you not rush into it without really thinking through A, your budget, and B, what you actually want to accomplish. Because unless you're a coder, you're going to have to hire somebody to develop your app and to maintain that app and to update that app every time Apple decides to update its its own operating system. Which feels like it's every other week. And none of this is cheap. We funded the creation of the app ourselves, and it's very, very, very expensive. Like, send your kids to college expensive. Don't worry, guys. I'm going to college on a basketball scholarship. Oh, honey. Don't get us wrong. We love our app. We're super proud of it. It's won a Webby Award, and Apple has highlighted it as one of the App Store's best apps. We continue to update it just about every week with a new recipe, and we're committed to it long term. That said, after the app had been out for a while, I felt like it wasn't permanent enough. So my mind drifted back to writing a cookbook. Even when I was a little kid, I wanted to write a book. One of my elementary school teachers told me that the Library of Congress holds all the books that have ever been printed in the United States. And even though that's not even technically true, I wrote in my diary that I wanted to write a book someday so it'd always be in the Library of Congress forever, even after I die. Even after the sun explodes in five billion years. Yeah, because by then, the Library of Congress will be relocated to another solar system. Yeah. Duh, Dad. Duh. So as I was saying, in 2012, we made the decision to write our first cookbook. But just like when we decided to develop an app, we had no idea what we were doing. We just knew that we didn't want to give up any creative control over the book. Even from the earliest days of Nom Nom Paleo, I only wanted to put out stuff that I was truly proud of. Stuff that wasn't compromised by what other people thought Nom Nom Paleo should be. Early on, one of the book publishers that reached out told me they wanted us to write a book called Paleo Junk Foods, which I remember just made you crazy. Yeah, that publisher clearly had no idea what I was trying to do with Nom Nom Paleo. 
I mean, dude, I, I never post like dessert recipes. Our blog and app are pretty unique in its tone and visuals. And so I knew that the only way to do this right was to have creative control over the book ourselves. Which to me meant we had to self-publish. That way we could control every aspect of the book. And also we wouldn't have to split any profits we made with a publisher. In the summer of 2012, we spent hours talking through this idea with Mel Jolan of WellFed and her husband, Dave. All four of us were in Estes Park, Colorado, and you and I picked Mel and Dave's brain endlessly because they'd just published their first book, Well Fed. Mel and Dave convinced me that self-publishing was definitely the way to go. Here's what they pointed out. The book publishing industry is in the middle of a lot of change. In the old days, book publishers would sign unknown authors and then help them develop their book ideas, provide editing and other support, then they would finance the printing of the books, and then they would use... Um, you know, their sales and distribution channels to get books into stores. They'd also finance the marketing of the books to get readers to, to buy the books. But these days, if an author already has a large audience, there's less of a need for a book publisher. Self-publishing has never been easier because authors can write, photograph, edit, print, and most importantly, market their books themselves. The only thing authors can't do themselves is handle distribution, which means getting the books physically into bookstores and other retailers. But as Mel and Dave told us, even that can be done differently now. You know, there are book distributors who will take a cut of the book sales in exchange for handling sales and distribution. In other words, authors who have the means to pay for the printing of a book and can market the books themselves, well, they don't necessarily need to rely on a traditional book publisher anymore. I remember just nodding vigorously when Mel and Dave outlined this whole thing out for us. And by the time we left Colorado, I was super convinced that we should self-publish. But you still weren't completely sold. You know, I know it makes a lot of financial sense to self-publish, but I was concerned because we literally had no idea what we were doing. We'd never done this before, and the only book development that you had done, Henry, was just be the editor of your high school yearbook. So, <laughs> What, you didn't think that qualified me for, for <laughs> creating a, a cookbook on our own? I know, I, I, I should have believed you because you have done an awesome job, but still. And so I kind of wanted the backing and security of a publisher that knew the ropes and could help us with the whole process. Besides, I knew that there would be people out there who wouldn't respect our book if it didn't have the seal of approval from a real publisher. Well, working with a real publisher normally looks very different from self-publishing, as you, you probably imagine. Most new authors who want to work with a traditional publisher need to go through a ton of steps before they even get to a book deal. So, for example, most start off by putting together a book proposal. And in the cookbook world, that means writing a sort of pitch document that outlines exactly what the book is going to be about and the recipes that are going to go in it. The proposal would describe the look and feel of the cookbook and how the author plans to go about marketing the book and to what audience. Next, typically, an author would then get a literary agent. The agent can help polish the proposal and shop it around to different publishers to try to land a book contract. Agents don't work for free, though. They'll take a certain percentage of whatever advance and royalties the author gets. The good news, of course, is that if you have a good agent, they'll be motivated to make sure the author gets the most lucrative deal. Actually, landing a book deal itself can be super challenging. Book publishing is kind of a big gamble, right? The publisher is investing in a book and really wants to make sure that that book will actually pay off in the end by selling a lot of copies. So a publisher is usually looking for authors with 
large and or loyal built-in audiences, as well as book ideas that'll appeal broadly to a you know big swath of readers. But because publishing a book by an unproven author can be a big risk, publishers try to hedge their bet by offering lower advances or royalties. So for example, a new author might get say like a $15,000 advance on royalties of 10% of the book's cover price. Hold on, mom. Time out. What does that mean? What's an advance? Well, it's basically an upfront payment to an author to write a book. The author doesn't actually earn any additional money on the book until after the book has already earned back the amount of the advance for the author. And for many books, the author never actually earns any royalties on top of the advance. You know, this reminds me of when uh, we were traveling with some other cookbook authors, and one of them actually came up to me and asked, so how do you guys actually make any money with Nom Nom Paleo? Because we all know that cookbooks don't make any money. That's, that's true. I mean... Most cookbooks don't. Yeah, they don't. And so it really is a labor of love. Yeah. And that's why we're on this podcast trying to sell our cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, for cookbook authors, a $15,000 advance at first can seem like a lot of money, especially to somebody who's completely unproven, right? A first-time author. But you also have to remember that an advance is usually split into several payments. So an author might get a certain portion of the advance upon signing the book contract, and then a little bit more when the manuscript is finally turned in, and then the rest when the book is published. Plus, with big traditional publishers... Cookbook authors often find themselves having to pay for a photographer, food stylist, and prop stylist out of their own advances. It's not uncommon for first-time authors to discover that after paying out-of-pocket for all these costs, they don't actually earn any money at all on their cookbooks. Yeah, some photographers can be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And you can only get a few photos. Right. So th this all explains why I was all in on self-publishing. I know. I know. So five years ago, we actually started writing our first cookbook, assuming it would be self-published. So even though I had reservations, I knew that financially this makes sense because as I've said before, I am Chinese. So, <laughs> you know, it, we, what does that mean? It just means that we are hardworking and frugal, not to stereotype <laughs> or anything. But not know. to stereotype. <laughs> I, I feel like that is kind of stereotyping, but okay. <laughs> Anyway, so anyway, back to how we started writing our first book. So it was a little crazy because one day we just sat down and started cobbling together a book. We had no real plan or anything, and I'd never even written a cookbook proposal or outline. We didn't even know we were supposed to come up with an outline or that we were supposed to write out the whole book before photographing it or laying it out on the page. Instead, we, we kind of just approached it like we approached blogging, which is, you know, you come up with a recipe you test it several times, you cook it up, and then I'd photograph each step as you were cooking, and then we would finalize everything. The, the photos, the layout, the head notes for the recipe, literally everything before we would move on to the next recipe. It was bewildering, but also exciting. And we got to learn cookbook production from scratch, at least our version of it. And most of what we made up, it turns out, was totally the opposite of how most people were doing it. Um, in, in other words, it, it was wrong. <laughs> Uh, but still, our little recipe factory just kept churning out these pages of the cookbook, one right after the other, for months. 
The silver lining, of course, to our collective ignorance was that we were creating a recipe book that really didn't look like a cookie cutter book at all. It was, uh, from a visual perspective, super, super unique. And there was another huge benefit of going down the path of self-publishing. We were both working full-time jobs at the time, so it was actually great that we didn't feel any deadlines or pressure. Like, we could really create really high-quality stuff, and we weren't rushing to, you know, come up with, you know, a set number of recipes. Like, we were creating really, really good recipes and taking the time to do all the photos and everything because we had no deadline. We didn't have a publisher breathing down our necks, and so we were able to do what we wanted to and to make it as high-quality as we wanted to. Yeah, that was definitely one of the benefits of not having a, a publisher. But then... We ended up signing with a traditional book publisher anyway. Ta-da! <laughs> on purpose? Yes, on purpose. What made you change your mind about going with a big publisher? I think it was me! Because I was still having this nagging feeling that going with a traditional publisher would mean better distribution. And most of all, greater acceptance. Acceptance by who? You know, just by by kind of the, the food the food media and people in the food business. I mean, at the time, paleo was so fringy that I knew that if we didn't have a traditional publisher behind us, we'd probably be dismissed out of hand. And as luck would have it, while Henry was on a business trip to India, I was contacted by Jean Lucas, an editor for Andrews McMill Publishing. In my eyes, Andrews McMill was perfect. It had published all these award-winning cookbooks that I loved and I owned. And it was also famous for publishing really amazing cartoon books like the Calvin and Hobbes Treasuries. Since the design of our cookbook was turning out to be all about cooking and comics, Andrews McMill couldn't have been a better fit. But at the time, I was definitely the Debbie Downer. I had still done the math and knew that self-publishing would be better financially for us. So, reluctantly, I turned down Andrew McMill's offer of a book deal. I thought that was that, but then Kirsty Melville, the publisher of Andrew's McMill, reached out and let me know that she'd be traveling to Palo Alto on vacation with her family the following week and wanted to sit down with Henry and I to have coffee to see if we could work something out. Of course, I couldn't say no to a publisher who was going to fly out and say hi to us. And I secretly hoped we could work something out. <laughs> well, I got back from India. I was super jet lagged and kind of grumpy um, and ended up getting dragged to this coffee meeting at Phil's in downtown Palo Alto. I was, uh, I think I, I had a baseball cap on and sweats. I was clearly not dressing up for this meeting because I was totally prepared to just stick to no. And you were excited that Ollie was sick from nursery school that day, so we had to take him along, too, and he was cranky. I figured it would be a great excuse. Like, you know, they would say, hey, please reconsider. And I'd be like, no, no, I'm jet lagged and Ollie's sick and we got to go. But Kirsty wore you down. Yeah, Kirsty is kind of great. She explained how Andrews McMeal could throw its logistical support behind our book, even though we were probably, I don't know, like 60, 60, 70 percent of the way done already. Um, and then really help us refine it and whip it into production-ready shape. They absolutely knew that the best way to produce the book would be to work with editors and uh, copy editors and, and uh, you know, the people who actually knew what they were doing to actually help us sell and distribute the book. So the only sticking points left really were creative control and finances. And here's where we lucked out with Kirsty. They really wanted to work with us. 
I'm not even sure why, but they really did. And basically, they came up with an arrangement that gave us final say on all creative decisions. That was amazing. Given that we were totally unproven authors, and I knew that was the one thing that, I mean, besides the financial stuff, that was keeping you back from signing on with a traditional publisher. Well, you know, you hear these horror stories, right, about cookbook authors who get into huge fights with their publisher because the publisher's like, this is what your cookbook cover is going to look like and there's going to be no debate, right? And you get no input into, you know, what the photography looks like or what the format of the book looks like or, you know, what photograph goes on on the cover of the book. And I know that Henry is a control freak and he (laughs) needs to have that control. So as soon as Kirstie said, well, maybe we can work something out, I was like, maybe we'll have a real publisher. Not like there's anything wrong with self-published stuff. It's very different now in 2017. There's really, there's a bunch of really awesome ones out there. But back then I was part of that closed-minded group that thought that it would be better if I went with a traditional publisher. I mean, you still kind of are closed-minded, but at least you're <laughs> <laughs> But at least you're welcoming in some self-published books. I am open-minded, okay? I I actually am not as closed-minded as I once was. I mean, some of our favorite books are by self-published authors. Like the Well-Fed series is actually one of our favorite cookbook series. Yeah, and the new Unforgettable book is actually a self-published book that I love too. Anyway, Kirsty put on the table a financial offer too that that even I couldn't say no to. So we ended up signing a book deal without actually ever wanting to sign a book deal with a big publisher. At least, you know, I never really wanted to sign a book deal with a with a big publisher. And it ended up being the best decision for our first cookbook, which uh, we wound up calling Nom Nom Paleo Food for Humans. So book number one, Nom Nom Paleo Food for Humans, was published in December of 2013, and it was everything we wanted it to be. It was packed with personality, thousands of step-by-step photos, and cheeky cartoons. It was an extension of ourselves and our family. I always said I wanted my cookbook to make readers feel like I was in the kitchen with them, talking them through every step of the cooking process. And I think we did it. To our surprise, Nom Nom Paleo Food for Humans became a New York Times bestseller, and it was nominated for a James Beard Award. It was a dream come true. And then everybody lived happily ever after. Wait, you haven't even talked about the new book yet. More, right after this musical interlude. Why do we do these little bits of music in the middle of our podcast anyway? Um, well, it adds color, Ollie. No, it doesn't. Podcasts are invisible. There's no color. So let's pick up where we left off. Nom Nom Paleo Food for Humans comes out, and it does pretty well. You're now not just a blogger and an app creator, but a bona fide best-selling cookbook author. You are too. We both are. Anyway, the cookbook success led to a bunch of big changes. I quit my job as a night shift hospital pharmacist, and you ended up changing jobs too. For a while, I focused mainly on the marketing efforts that come with selling a cookbook. Book tours, radio interviews, partnering with companies like Whole Foods. But all along, we knew our publisher was getting antsy for us to get started on a second cookbook. At the time, though, we really had nothing left in the tank. I was incredibly busy with my new job, and to be honest, I kind of just wanted to try some new things. I like learning to make new stuff, and so 
That's why I had really gotten into app development and why I threw myself into learning about designing a cookbook and then even making a vinyl Nom Nom Paleo action figure to help with the marketing of the book. So after the cookbook came out, I was more interested in doing something different, like, you know, figuring out how to put together this podcast. Which ended up killing you. Well, one thing I definitely learned is that there are limits to how much I uh, can and should take on. You and... mean you're not a superhero with regenerative powers? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm the Wolverine of, uh, of this family. But you know, even Wolverine didn't look too good in this latest movie. Cookbook number two actually started way before the podcast, though. Yeah, you started writing down recipes for it as soon as we got back from Thailand, just a few weeks after the first cookbook hit stores at the end of 2013. The thing is, I'm not sure we had a clear idea what the second cookbook should be about, but I just knew I was inspired by our travels around Southeast Asia, and I really wanted to capture and incorporate these new flavor profiles into my recipes. I also knew that I didn't want a second cookbook to be Nom Nom Paleo, book number two, more of the same. I wanted the recipes to tie together more cohesively and to have a theme. That's really where having a cookbook editor was incredibly helpful. We sat down with Jean, our editor, to brainstorm and to try to figure out what approach the new book should take. We looked at a bunch of cookbook trends. One popular idea was to do a make-ahead cookbook, one that had recipes for people who like to cook ahead of time and have stuff ready in the fridge or freezer. Another idea was to go the complete opposite direction and write a cookbook of quick and easy recipes, dishes that can be made in no more than 30 or 45 minutes from start to finish. But I also like the idea of leftover makeovers, meaning we could show people how to cook something and then repurpose that recipe in different ways throughout the week to keep things interesting. We debated for a while about what type of book would resonate with readers the most, but pretty quickly we realized that readers actually didn't want just make-ahead recipes or just leftover makeovers or just quick and easy meals. That's right. I mean, because everything that we make, I always think of myself as the consumer. And I know that most home cooks need all three types of recipes on a regular basis. Because you know what I mean, like there are days when you totally feel ready to cook and you have all the ingredients you need and you also have all the time in the world so you can cook up something that's a little more fancy or involved. But there are other days where you're crazy busy and you're frantically trying to throw something together before your family starves. On those occasions, you just want to prepare a tasty fast meal. So that's how we came up with the concept of Ready or Not, our new cookbook. I love that name. I love it almost as much as the working title for the book. Do you remember what it was? Of course. You wanted to call it Nom Nom Paleo 2 Electric Boogaloo. That sounds stupid, Dad. So when you say stupid, you mean super awesome, right? No. Anyway, as we kept thinking about how to organize Ready or Not, we decided to sort the recipes into five color-coded sections that correspond to how ready or not ready you might be on any given day or night. So after a quick reintroduction to our family and what paleo is all about, we dive into a section called Get Set, the purple section. This is where we talk about stocking up your kitchen with everything you need, from basic cooking tools to store-bought ingredients you'll need to cook at the drop of a hat. This purple section is also where we put make-ahead sauces and staples, like all-purpose stir-fry sauce, which you've been posting a lot about on, on Instagram, uh, spicy kimchi, and sun butter hoisin sauce. 
Next, it's the ready section. So this green section of the book is for whenever you want to get a head start on the week by prepping your food in advance or whenever you want to impress your guests with something more dazzling like pressure cooker bosom or mock mock wings. This is also where I put a few of my favorite desserts too, like tangerine dream tart and strawberry almond semifredo. Are those paleo junk foods by any chance? No, they are delicious desserts. They're really, really, really good. And I tested them a lot, a lot, a lot. And I tried them out on my friends who aren't paleo. And so they're very, very good. And there's only like a handful of desserts in there. But all of them are really good and worth the time. Then we get into the kind of ready section, which we usually just call the orange section of the book. It's stuffed with ideas and recipes for making over your leftovers and transforming pre-made foods into totally new dishes. So this is the section that I think we use most of all in our house because we're constantly scrounging around in the kitchen and trying to make the most out of our refrigerator scraps. But my favorite section of the book is the not ready section. It's red for emergencies, like when you're tired after a long day of work, but your in-laws are coming over for dinner, so you need to slap something together that's both healthy and delicious. And so I stuff this section with quick soups, stir fries, sheet pan suppers, and fast snacks. Most of the recipes in this section take less than 30 minutes to make, and some take as little as 15 minutes. Finally, we have a blue section, which we called Beyond Ready. It's all about taking your cooking to the next level by stringing together different recipes into weekly meal plans, and also offering inspiration for no recipe recipes. The goal is to make you a culinary rock star, no matter if you want to become a super meticulous planner or a seat-of-your-pants improviser. The point of this is that Ready or Not is like several books all crammed into one volume. So no matter if you're ready to cook or not, we've got recipes that'll fit your needs. You know, this all seems pretty straightforward when we lay it all out, but the process of putting together this cookbook was really, really insane. Um, I remember just spending so many nights trying to like, you know, will this book into existence. Uh, and in many ways, this was way tougher than creating our first cookbook. Well, that's because we were much more ambitious with this cookbook. Like this book had like a theme and everything has to fit the way we say it's going to fit or else it's lame. And so the last time around, we were just kind of repurposing some recipes from our app. And to be honest, no one expected anything of us. So we were kind of like we would throw in great recipes, but we didn't. We weren't expecting to be judged on them. But this time around, expectations are sky high and we're aiming to go above and beyond that standard. I mean, I really wanted to go for broke. With Ready or Not, every step of every recipe includes a photo that shows you what's going on. And every step is also accompanied by an easy to understand caption that explains what I'm doing. It literally is like I'm right there next to you in the kitchen, showing you exactly how to make each step. It's also presented in a comic book style, like you're reading a graphic novel. And there's lots of cartoons, too. Yeah, it makes it really fun and interesting for kids, too. It's even easier for me to cook out of it. I don't like cooking out of it, but I like looking at it. Totally. Our secret agenda was to make Ready or Not a book that cooks of every level and every age could enjoy. We wanted kids to be able to pick up this book and get a kick out of seeing how raw ingredients are gradually transformed into incredible dishes, like magic tricks. Yeah, this time around, we also made sure to keep the foods and ingredients broadly accessible to a wide audience, meaning, you know, we focused on dishes that are popular with most readers. Some people have asked whether we included a lot of Instant Pot recipes. 
And you know, I never quite know if I get these questions because people want more Instant Pot recipes or they don't want so many Instant Pot recipes. Anyway, the answer should please everyone. There are a dozen Instant Pot recipes in our book and they are 12 of the best ones I've created for the Instant Pot. But we also made sure to include alternative cooking methods for those of you who don't use pressure cookers. I tried my best to make this book as inclusive as possible for everyone. In fact, you don't even have to be paleo to enjoy this book. Ready or Not is actually all about getting folks to hone a basic life skill that can have a huge impact on your health. Cooking your own food, no matter if you're ready or not, and no matter if you're paleo or not. sounding like a terrible commercial. I really can't wait for you guys to see this book. Ready or Not is even bigger and better than our first book with more than 150 recipes and almost 2,000 images packed into its 352 pages. And just like last time, our publisher Andrews McMill gave us total creative control over every aspect of the book, from its photography and design to the weird little snarky bits that I added to the recipe instructions. Andrews McNeil didn't pressure us to cut costs, so once again, this is a coffee table quality, full color, hardcover book with lay flat, double reinforced binding. We even made a point to get the cookbook printed on the thickest, most heavyweight pages possible. There's a bookmark ribbon to keep track of which recipes you're looking at, and that's important because the book has 22% more pages than Nom Nom Paleo Food for Humans. Oh, and by the way, the vast majorities of the recipes in Ready or Not are entirely new. They're not They're not old recipes that we pulled from the app or from the blog or from... Though we did add a few of my favorite classic recipes in there, like pressure cooker kalua pig and crackling chicken. Mom, Ollie's crackling chicken. Right, Mom. <laughs> anyway, if you're curious to see the complete list of recipes in Ready or Not, there's a link to the recipe index in our show notes. If you take a look, you'll see that over 120 of the recipes in the book are Whole30 friendly, too. We'll also link to a post that shows you a sneak peek of what the book looks like inside so you can check out the colorful cartoons, photos, and layouts. This is a product of three years of hard work, and I have a feeling you'll love it, or at least we hope you'll love it, and we hope it'll delight you. We made this book for you, our loyal nomsters, and we can't wait to share it with you. So, when's the publication date? Excellent question, Owen. Yes, it's almost like you were told to ask it. Well, Ready or Not is available for pre-order now, wherever books are sold, but it'll be released in just a few weeks on August 1st, 2017. And if you pre-order the book, be sure to head to nomnompaleo.com and fill out a form that tells us where you ordered your copy so we can send you a couple of exclusive pre-order thank you gifts. First, you'll get a special 50-page preview of Ready or Not, complete with 12 of the recipes from the book, including paper-wrapped chicken, Bangin' Baby Back Ribs, Potsticker Stir-Fry, and Tex-Mex Beef and Rice Casserole. That way you can start cooking right away. You'll also get a special 40-page ebook called One and Done, 10 healthy, hassle-free meals made in one pot or pan by Nom Nom Paleo. This ebook contains 10 brand-new, never-before-seen recipes that can be made in just one pan or pot, including kimchi fried rice in quotation marks, Thai curry chicken casserole, paleo chicken chow mein, and Mitza. These bonus gifts will vanish into thin air come August, so don't miss out. 
thousands of you who have pre-ordered our cookbook have already started cooking the recipes in these bonus eBooks, and we love seeing the results posted on Instagram. While we're trying to get you to buy stuff, we might as well mention that you can also order a copy of our 2018 Ready or Not wall calendar, too. This is an Amazon exclusive, and it's a companion to our new cookbook, and uh, it's packed with a mix of recipes from our books, our blog, and our app. It's a 16-month calendar that covers September 2017 to December 2018, and best of all, it comes with a sheet of Nom Nom Paleo stickers that you can use to decorate whatever you want. Hang this calendar on your wall as a daily reminder to get in the kitchen, and then you can cook with Michelle throughout the year. One last thing about the book. I'm going on a book tour across the country when Ready or Not hits stores. Well, actually, I'll also be in Toronto, so I'll be in doing a tour of the U.S. and Toronto. Um, so look out for a tour stop near you. Check out the events page on my website and RSVP to one of my book talks and signings. I'm already exhausted looking at the travel schedule. I think it will be fun visiting different states. And I'm looking forward to meeting all of you out there. I'll be lugging a ton of free Nom Nom Paleo swag to hand out at my book events, including socks, calendars, stickers, magnets, pins, and more. Basically, we blew our entire marketing budget on tchotchkes. Okay, I think that's all we have to say about our new cookbook. I'm sorry if this is sounding like a commercial. But, you know, once in a while, we have to do our pledge break because we really do believe in the public radio model. Like we like to provide tons of great free content all the time. But once in a blue moon, we hit you over the head with a pledge drive and ask you to support us by picking up a copy or three of our latest labor of love. So think of this as our version of a once every four years pledge break. We really are just a mom and pop operation and everything we do is supported by listeners like you. So we're thrilled to be able to put out something we think you'll really be excited about. And if you buy it, maybe Ollie will be able to go to college even if he doesn't get a basketball scholarship. It's okay. I only need one year of college. After that, I'm entering the NBA draft. You are truly delusional. Crush of the week. Okay, Owen, your turn this time. What's your crush of the week? Volunteering at the food bank. That's a great one. We did it pretty recently, too. What made you want to volunteer? Well, every time that we were in Portland, I would always see these homeless people on the streets. Um, and I felt really bad because we were always going to go and eat some really great food. And I would always know that they were going hungry. So I wanted to find a way to get myself involved and possibly help them have a better situation in life. Oh, you're a good kid. So we did some research and found that while some food banks have an age minimum for volunteers, many don't or have a very low age minimum. And coincidentally, we heard from the folks at Feeding America at about the same time that they wanted us to help spread the word about volunteering at their food centers. It was the perfect opportunity to get the whole family involved. So not too long ago, our whole family, including Popo and Gung Gung, or my parents, drove up to the Oregon Food Bank and signed up for an afternoon shift packing food. We were there with a couple of big groups of volunteers from local companies, as well as some individual volunteers, too. 
The folks at the food bank gave us some basic instructions on setting up a little assembly line to pack bags of dried beans that would then go into grocery boxes for those in need. And then we put on aprons and hairnets and gloves and got to work. It was really fun. I got to sort and weigh beans. It was like working in a factory. So basically, we were trying to pack the beans as fast as possible to keep the assembly line going. I don't know about you, but I was competing with the other tables of bean packers. We had the oldest, my dad, and youngest volunteer at our table. And that was you, Ollie. But we kicked butt. We packed more boxes than anyone else. Yes, because volunteering is all about kicking other people's butts. No, but we were very efficient. Anyway, at the end of the shift, we heard from the team at Oregon Food Bank about the impact the volunteers had on the community. Average meal size, 1.2 pounds. The beans pay with other things in that food box. That means we created 11,746 meals. And we also got a tour of the food bank. It was huge. It reminded me of that big warehouse in the final scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Or a really big Costco without any customers running to get free samples. Like you? Well, there aren't usually many gluten-free free samples. So you run, and then you stop. Yeah. Unfortunately, many of the gluten-free options for free samples at Costco are usually like tuna or something like that. Oh, then I should be running to get those free samples. What, and elbow other people out of the way? Because a trip to Costco should be all about kicking other people's butts. Everything is about kicking people's butts. So back to volunteering at the food bank. Would you do it again? Yes, totally. I want to do it again throughout this summer. I'm sure we can find time for us to all do another shift at the Oregon Food Bank soon. It sure beats sitting around in our house and staring at our computer screens all day. And if any of you out there want to volunteer at a local food bank, just go do it. Go to feedingamerica.org to find a food bank near you and give back this summer. If you do it in Portland, you might even spot us working a shift. Question of the week. This week's question comes from Laura. She writes, Hi, Michelle. I know that coffee is okay for paleo eaters, and one of my favorite summer drinks in the morning is a glass of cold-brewed coffee. Unfortunately, I'm finding that even one cup in the morning keeps me from being able to sleep at night. I see that you have been posting on your Instagram stories about your morning matcha lattes, so I'm curious what that's all about and whether it's affecting your sleep. Thanks. Well, Laura, I too love the taste of cold brew, specifically chameleon cold brew. And, you know, they're not a sponsor, by the way. I just love it. It's super smooth and delicious. And when I have it, I sometimes add... Nut Pods non-dairy creamer, which is also not a sponsor, to make it taste like unsweetened melted coffee ice cream. Mmm, so good. I like how you have to constantly say that uh, Chameleon and Nut Pods aren't a sponsor. Well, I believe in full disclosure, and I we pretty much have no sponsors. <laughs> but I like it that way. That way I can just talk about what I like and what I buy, and if I change my mind, I can do it while staying totally honest with everyone. When it comes down to coffee, I actually have a lot of favorites, but I've never really needed it because I'm not the kind of person who just has to have a cup of coffee to start their morning. Unlike me. 
Right. But cold brew just tastes really great to me. So I drank it, I don't know, pretty regularly until I discovered that I too get really jittery when I have too much. Actually, to tell the truth, this isn't like a recent discovery. It's been like this for a long time, but I've kind of ignored my body's response because I didn't want to have to give up my precious cold brew. Recently though, I rechecked my 23andMe DNA report and I saw that I actually have a genetic variation in the enzyme that metabolizes caffeine, which means that the stimulant or caffeine hangs around longer in my system than in most other people. And that's why I get the heart palpitations and jitteriness, and it can be harder for me to fall asleep at night. And that's also why you switch to cold matcha lattes. Yep. Matcha, which is a special type of finely milled green tea powder, also contains caffeine, but there's less of it in matcha than in coffee. Also, matcha contains a compound called L-theanine that's supposed to exert like a calming effect. So combined with the caffeine, you get this increased alertness without anxiousness or restlessness. And instead, I get this zen-like focus. You don't seem very zen-like in the morning. Yeah, you still yell at us in the morning to get ready for school and stuff. Just because I'm zen-like does not mean that you guys are conducive to me being zen-like. And zen masters can be yelly and loud too, Busters. Anyway, I use matcha to make cold, dairy-free lattes. It's like a jade green drink that's creamy, a little coconutty, and a little grassy too, but in a good way. I combine a cup of coconut water with a teaspoon of matcha powder and two tablespoons of dairy-free creamer. I also add two scoops of easily dissolvable unflavored collagen peptides too and blend it all together with an immersion blender. The collagen gives my latte a creamier texture while at the same time it helps boost my gut, skin, and joint health. What do you think about the taste? It tastes yummy and I love it because matcha is naturally high in umami and its natural grassiness is the perfect foil to the sweet and creamy coconutty notes. Of course, if you've never tasted matcha, go to your local neighborhood hipster coffee joint and order a matcha drink just to see if you like it. I've had matcha and other Japanese green teas my whole life, so I really like the taste. But I'd hate for you guys to drop a ton of money on a can of matcha only to discover that you don't like the taste. High quality matcha can be really expensive, so you should definitely try before you buy. You don't have to get the ceremonial grade matcha that's used in the formal Japanese tea ceremonies, but even the organic culinary grade matcha isn't cheap. So let's say you decide you're going to get it. Where can you find matcha? Well, you can find it on Amazon, Thrive Market, and Whole Foods. There's also lots of brands of matcha available online, like Breakaway Matcha is one that's based up in Napa, and it's served at some of the top restaurants up there. It's super high quality, and you can find it online. I also buy cans of matcha at my favorite tea shops and at Japanese markets. The key, though, is to check that the matcha powder is bright green and not a muddy brown color. Buy it from a respected purveyor, and if you're ordering online, just check the reviews and make sure you're getting the good stuff. Then, head over to nomnompaleo.com and search for my cold matcha latte recipe. I also have some matcha gummies that you can make too. But this cold matcha latte drink is now my drink of choice in the morning. I whip it up after I drop the kids off at school or camp so I can savor it in peace. Are you saying you can't savor it when we're around? We're peaceful. We're super peaceful. We're full of peace, full of peace, full of peace, full of peace. 
Full of peace, 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 full of peace. Oh, jeez. So that's it for this week. This podcast was recorded and produced at Nam Nam Paleo World Headquarters, also known as the Dining Room Table in Our House, located in the heart of Silicon Valley, 50 feet from Jeremy Lin's parents' house. The Nom Nom Paleo theme song is by Mark Bartels, with additional music by Big O, Lilo, and Proletaire. This podcast is supported by Thrive Market, our favorite online destination for wholesome products at wholesale prices. Pay one low membership price and you can shop from over 4,000 healthy, natural products. Always 25 to 50% off retail, delivered straight to your door. Right now, if you go to nomnompaleo.com slash thrive, New users will get 25% off their entire purchase and free shipping on their first order. And in case you're wondering, unless stated otherwise, none of the brands or products mentioned sponsor this podcast. We just talk about the stuff we love. If you like this podcast, we have two favors to ask. First, you can visit us at nomnompaleo.com for show notes and links. And you can also find hundreds of step-by-step recipes, kitchen tips, snarky rating, and more. We also have an app, two cookbooks, a calendar, and an action figure you can check out. More information at nomnompaleo.com. And last but not least, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us get a sense as to what you like. Join us next time for more Nom Nom Paleo podcasts. And this is Lolo signing out. Bye-bye.